Let us pray together. Lord, as we come to you now as your disciples, we acknowledge that you are the true, the living and the everlasting God. You are the God of all time and the Lord of the years. The dawn of each new day is a given and unreturnable but precious gift from you to us. We thank you that your power and majesty and greatness are revealed in the glory of the heavens and the wonders of the earth alike. We thank you too that in the Bible we have learned about you and that through the church we have not only learned to know about you but come to know you for ourselves as children of an everlasting Father. We thank you that you once appeared on earth and walked among us and that in Jesus Christ your Son you taught us how to live and through your Holy Spirit gave us life. And we thank you too for the gift of faith in you and in your risen and loving Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. For the capacity to put our hands day by day into yours as our trustworthy, kind and ever-present friend. God our Father, trusting you is easy when everything is good, when everything works out and we are happy with life. But we know that the real test and measure of our faith is when our grasp of you weakens and confidence vanishes, when things go wrong and trouble comes. Lord, help us to remember always that faith is a gift, not something worked up by us and offered to you, but rather a free gift of grace given to us by you. And this we pray, in the year that lies ahead now, give us open hearts and a readiness to receive the gift of faith we need from you, and so experience and enjoy the relief and the release, the strength and the comfort, that trusting you, even in the darkest and longest nights of life, can bring. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Amen. One of the programmes I've come to enjoy on television during the period of the Covid pandemic is Bargain Hunt. Many of you will know it. In the programme, two teams, the Reds and the Blues, assisted by their own antiques expert, are given just an hour to buy three items from antique fairs and antique shops to sell on later at auction. The winner in the programme is the team that makes the best profit or just as often makes the smallest loss. And the two questions that most often occur in practically every episode of the programme are the same. First, what's it worth? And then second, usually asked by the antiques dealer, 
What do you think it's worth? They're both questions of value. Questions about value arise constantly in our daily lives. Most often, I suppose, when we go to the supermarket for our weekly messages. For example, we pick up a three for two offer and we try to weigh up whether we'll use the three tins before the use-by date on the packaging. Or we weigh up the savings to be made if we buy the supermarket's own brand product and wonder whether when it comes to quality it's worth the risk for the lower price. And it's no different when we shop for major items, domestic appliances, computers and televisions and the like. How much are we willing to pay for them? Is it worth it for what we'll get? Is the special deal a real deal or is it just a marketing ploy? Like the toaster I spotted in an electrical shop, reduced to half price. £50 reduced to £24.99, would you believe? Yet across the road, in another chain store, the price for the item, the full price for the item, was £26.99. The question of value is often hard to answer. Yet questions of value aren't just important in retail. They matter in things like relationships and indeed romance as well. When a girl meets a guy and falls in love and really gets to know him, sooner or later she'll discover his faults or else she'll be told his faults by her unimpressed friends. And then she has to ask herself, is it worth it? Is he worth it? Now in religion, exactly the same questions arise. A banker might express it this way. If I invest in faith, what return can I expect? In the religious marketplace, as well as the retail park, people ask the same questions. Will I get good value here? Is it worth it for me? Of course, at one level, we should believe in God because God is real and we should follow Jesus Christ because his claims are true. And we should do what's right in life always because it's right and not because of the reward we'll get. Yet nowadays, the claim that Christianity is true doesn't cut much ice. Folk aren't interested so much in whether Christianity is true. They want to know what its value is, what's in it for them, whether it works. The question of truth, in other words, is less important for them than the question of value. Is it worth it? And because Christianity is a personal faith and centres round a person, Jesus Christ, in respect of Christianity particularly, the question is really, is he worth it? Bearing in mind that I'll be taking a number of services at Muckert and Dollar during the next few months, I thought I would conduct a little series of services with you and seek to answer that question. The title I've chosen for this series is He's Worth It, because I deeply believe that Jesus Christ is worth it and that the free return that is offered to a free investment of faith in Jesus Christ 
is quite beyond words. Human words being all that I have to trade with as a preacher, I want to show you how valuable faith in Jesus Christ and commitment to him is by inviting you in this mini-series to consider Jesus first as an example worth following, second as a teacher worth listening to, third as a saviour worth receiving, next as a friend well worth knowing, and finally as a master worth serving. So in this first in the series, Jesus, an example worth following. The power of example is everywhere. How often we say things like, isn't she just like her mother? Or isn't he the splitting image of his father? Usually we just mean looks, but sometimes it, it extends beyond looks to mannerisms and even beyond looks and mannerisms to both character and behaviour as well. What proportion of abusing adults had an abusing parent? What proportion of kindly and considerate folk grew up in a kindly and considerate home? The power of example. People copy their parents. Pupils copy their peers. Folk follow the crowd. To stand against current trends takes a particular kind of character and a special kind of strength. We tend to be sheep-like in our behaviour. We follow the crowd. When the crowd says ba, we say ba as well. And where most people lead, we too often unthinkingly and sometimes quite unwisely follow. It takes courage, real courage, to stand out from the crowd nowadays. It takes courage to swim against the rising tide and act Christianly today and live in the world the way God wants us to. All of us imitate and copy and follow even when we don't realise we're doing it. And the real question, the real challenge is who do we imitate? Who do we copy and follow? In life, who do we as Christians adopt as our role model day by day in the 21st century? Here the Bible helps us because the Bible offers us Jesus as our perfect example. Now, of course, I know that Jesus is more, so much more than just a mere example. He's every Christian's saviour and living Lord. He's the eternal God. But I want you to think about him just now as a role model. To think of Jesus himself as our template for a life in the 21st century that is at once fulfilling to us, beneficial to others and pleasing to God as well. In the Bible, Peter uses a very particular and vivid word when he talks about Jesus being our example. He has left us an example that we should follow in his steps, Peter says. And the word for example is a very particular one. The word is hypogram. It's a Greek word, but forget the fact it's Greek. And just think of this as a particular device. 
It's a word drawn from the language of the primitive schoolroom, and it comes not just from the days before paper as we know it was invented, before school children had their jotters, but from the time when papyrus, the primitive paper that was made from the pith of the bulrush, was far too rare and expensive for children to practice their writing on in the classroom. So something else was needed. The hypogram was the answer. It was really the precursor of the squeaky slate bed that some of us can still remember from our early classroom years. What was it? It was a shallow box filled with soft wax and the pen or stylus that was used to write on it was pointed at one end to form the letters and flat at the other end to erase the letters and smooth the wax again so that you could start again. And the pre precise method of use in primitive times is known because Plato describes it in great detail. What would happen would be this. The schoolmaster would first form the letters or numbers in a line. Below them he would draw two parallel lines. Sometimes he might lightly trace the letters in wax between these two lines beneath his own letters. And then after that the task of the pupil was either to copy what was written above or to trace the lightly formed letters of the schoolmaster in order to replicate or reproduce as precisely, completely and exactly as possible what was in the, 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 the schoolmaster's line. This is what Peter had in mind when he wrote that Jesus has left us an example. As one writer says, just as the school pupil learned to write by following the perfect copper plate example of the schoolmaster, so in the school of life, we can only learn by copying the perfect pattern of life offered to us by Jesus Christ. You see, in the conduct of his life, his attitudes towards others and towards God, his principles and his priorities day by day, Jesus offers us a role model, a template for life to use in our attempts to live for God as he did and to please God perfectly, as he in a unique and perfect manner did long ago. Jesus has left us an example. Not an example merely to admire and praise, far less to analyse and debate theologically. He has left us an example to imitate. We are to copy him. We are to be what Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 calls reflections of his glory, reflections of his glorious perfection. Jesus has left us an example to copy and he calls us to be Christ-like men and women, to be little Christs if you like, little copies of Jesus Christ living out his life today in the 21st century world. In Mere Christianity, speaking of the purpose of the Church, C.S. Lewis says this, The Church exists for nothing else but to draw others into Christ, to make them little Christs. If the Churches aren't doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, 
sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It's my ambition that you believe in Christ, that you are drawn into Christ, to use C.S. Lewis's language, but it's my passion that you should become, should each become, little Christs where you live in today's world. There are three aspects of Christ's character that the Bible explicitly commands us to copy. And to put flesh on the bones of what I've been saying, I want to point them out to you. In the first place, in the Bible we are commanded to be like Christ, to copy him in his service of others. The story of Jesus stooping to wash the disciples' feet when they reached the upper room, performing for them that most menial of tasks, encapsulates the entire ministry of Jesus. I am among you as one who serves, Jesus told them. But then, after rising from the table and girding a towel round his waist and filling a ewer with water and stooping to wash his disciples' feet, he eyeballed them and he said, I have left you an example that you should do as I have done to you. As the words of an early Graham Kendrick song put it, this is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him. He offers us an example of a life of service, of putting others' needs before our own. And this as a deliberate policy, as a permanent mindset, not just an occasional notion, not just when we feel like it, not just when there's something in it for us, but quite simply because a selfless lifestyle spells out who we are as Christians and who we are as Christ's in today's world. In a selfish world and to a selfish world, Jesus calls us to model a selfless spirit, tells us that the one who would save his life must lose it, and declares in your lives you must think and act like Jesus Christ. In the Bible we are invited and encouraged, even commanded, to be like Christ in his service of others. Secondly, the Bible tells us to copy Christ in his love. The religion of the Jews was a religion of a thousand laws. The ingenuity of the Pharisees led to multiplied regulations. But Jesus gave his disciples a single commandment to sum up their whole duty. What was it? The duty of love. He told them that was what he wanted them to do. This is my new rule. Love one another, he told them, as I have loved you. What this command to copy Jesus and his love means in practice is revealed in the Bible's, the New Testament's unique word for love, agape. That word means not romance, far less sex, or a warm rosy glow. It is rather a commitment of the will issuing in specific actions. It is, to use Willie Bartley's phrase, seeking the highest good of the other, 
be he friend or foe, poor or rich, attractive or obnoxious. Seeking the highest good of others was the unerring compass that guided Jesus in his ministry and set him on the road to Calvary. For it was love, the desire of Christ for his Father's sake to seek our highest good, that took him all the way to the cross and to his death for our sins long ago. The template Jesus sets out for us is a life of love, giving rather than taking, doing what we can to make individuals better, to make communities stronger and to make the world a safer place. But it was neither serving others or love that Peter was thinking about when he offered his fellow Christians the picture of the hypogram. It was in respect of something else. Listen and see if you can spot it. If you endure suffering, even when you have done right, God will bless you for it. It was to this that God called you. For Christ himself suffered for you and left you an example that he should, you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. When he was insulted, he did not answer back with an insult. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but placed his hope in God. Now it's obvious that when Peter wrote these words, they were to Christians who were being despised and abused and cruelly treated, for daring to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And Peter was pointing them to the example of Christ's sufferings and how he responded to them. He is drawing their attention to the spirit of Jesus and the attitude of Jesus when he was faced with, with abuse and scorn and suffering. He didn't trade insult for insult. He didn't return wrong for wrong. Instead, as we know from Luke's Gospel, even as he was hanging on the cross, Jesus looked up to the Father and prayed, Father, forgive them. Yes, the Bible calls us to copy Christ in his service, to copy Christ in his unfailing love, but also to copy Christ in his forgiveness. Perhaps this is a message for someone listening right now to this streaming. Listen to Max Licado as, as we finish. This is what Max Licado has said. Is there any emotion that imprisons the soul more than an unwillingness to forgive? What do you do when people mistreat you or the ones you love? Does the fire of anger boil within you with leaping flames consuming your passions and emotions? Or do you reach somewhere to some source of cool water and pull out a bucket of mercy to free yourself? And then he says this, don't get on the roller coaster of resentment and anger. You be the one who says, yes, he mistreated me. Yes, she wronged me. Yes, they hurt me, but I am going to be like Christ. I forgive. 
I'm proud and happy to be able to commend Jesus Christ to you today as an example worth following because he's worth it. He surely is. God bless you. We're going to pray right now and the theme of our prayers for others is going to be hope. Let us pray. God our Father, although there are many good times in life when the waters are calm and the sun's shining, life isn't always straightforward and sometimes the sky is overcast, the storms roll into our lives our faith is tested and the future seems uncertain. Today, in your presence, we remember in prayer all those who are discouraged or despairing. Those who might be afraid of the future because their age is increasing, their health failing or their personal circumstances are straitened. We pray for them. We remember those who are worried because of tensions and stresses, battles or breakdowns in their family's relationships. We pray for them. And we think of those who are homeless or lack the resources to care properly for themselves or their children, who lack sufficient self-worth to overcome addictions or sufficient personal support to imagine, let alone hold on, lay hold on, a brighter future for themselves or their families. Almighty God, be the author of hope in their lives by providing them with the capacity to trust you, the God of all hope, and give them the faith and courage they need, we pray, to place themselves and their loved ones in your good hands. We remember also those who live at the sharp end in a world in which optimism is scarce and hope in short supply. We think particularly of those in the National Health Service, exhausted by the toll of continuing to run the health service, to care for the living, cure the sick and comfort the dying, day after day after day after day, often with scarce resources and scant appreciation. We pray for those at the sharp end of escalating climate changes which threaten to rob them of their livelihoods, to deprive them of their homes and homelands and to wash their whole future into the seas. And we pray for those forced to sell their organs for profit or themselves for sex just to feed their children while violence, oppression and injustice of every kind seem to flourish around them. We pray for them all. God of all hope, we turn to you now. Give hope to the hopeless. Hear the cries of the despairing and waken the world to its blindness and folly. Lord God, we pray that ways may be found and followed to provide for a better future than fear imagines and that a new dawn of hope may begin to break over the horizon of the darkness in which so many people still live, to shed light upon them and give birth to fresh hope 
greater optimism and a deeper happiness. Answer our prayers, we pray, not according to our deserts, but according to your infinite mercy and constant love. In Jesus' name. Amen.